And we are live. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Welcome back to the Realist Podcast in the Dunya, the three Muslims. We're joined here with a very special brother, a Bengali brother, Brother Dili Hussein. Assalamu alaikum, bro. Wa alaikum assalam Upon whose upon whose testimony do you say the realest podcast in the world? Uh honestly, the only testimony that matters. No, I'm just playing. Uh, <laughs> only the testimony is based on our feedback, bro, and it's unrefuted, undisputed, bro. If you okay. could do better, then do better. Show us someone better. Alhamdulillah. <laughs> now, a lot of requests have been saying that you speak to Brother Dili in Bengali. I want to, bro. Maybe we'll do for a little bit, but I don't want Brother Rami to feel out of place, you know? Of course not. Yeah, Rami's actually an ex-Bengali. He doesn't okay. identify with the Bengali, you know, discourse anymore. Right, Rami? Of course. Yeah, yeah. Trans, trans, uh, trans yeah. So how was your journey, bro, from uh, Bangladesh to Palestine? It was, it was rough. It was rough, but, uh, you know, it's easy to identify uh, kind of against the Israeli people. So mm. that makes me feel, you know, like one of them. Khair, bro. I mean, you guys heard it here first. Brother Dili, man, you're in the UK right now. I'm indeed. I'm indeed. Alhamdulillah. Born and, born and bred or what's going on? Born and bred in Bedford. My dad came here in 1966, mm. uh, pretending to be the son of his uncle. Um, that's how a lot of people came at the time. Um, he was six, seven years old, and we've been in this town called Bedford, uh, which is only 40 miles north of London. Born and bred, never left the hood. Subhanallah, subhanallah. We were there, in fact, in fact, my dad, my dad, may Allah bless him and preserve him, I mean, I mean, he was the first immigrant child in Bedford town. Really? So from, yeah, so from Indians, Jamaicans... Uh, Pakistanis, Bangladeshi. My dad was the first immigrant child in Bedford. Wow. wow. Yeah. So yeah. So so deep roots in this town. Deep roots in this town. So you're you're second generation then? No, we'd be considered. Well, it's debatable. We'd be considered third or fourth. Third or fourth? How so? Yeah. Because the first generation would be those who arrived in the fifties, immediately after post war, post World War Two. Mm. So that's the first generation. So that would be my father's uh, paternal uncle, so my, my dada's, yeah, that's first mm -hmm. generation. Um, it is debatable whether my father would fall into first or second generation. Third generation would be my brother, my older brother lot, so that's the people who were born 1975, 1980s onwards. Mm -hmm. and, then the, and then the third or fourth would be us, so somewhat millennials born in the mid to late 80s, early 90s. So Muslims have been in the UK like in terms of uh, the biggest uh, ethnic group of Muslims in the UK yeah. are South Asians, right? Mm. So about so that's, so that's 68% of all Muslims in the UK are first and foremost either Pakistani. And when, and when we say Pakistani, they're either from Azad, Jammu, Kashmir or Jalam. And then you get Bangladeshis are the second biggest group and they are 95% from Silet. Mm, then, you, okay. then, you get, then you get Indian Gujaratis. So we make up seven out of ten Muslims, and the rest is like Turks, Arabs, uh, West Africans, and everything in between. Okay, okay. So Bengali is number two, you said? In terms of numbers, yes. Numbers. And you said Saleti is the major composition of that? Practically most Bangladeshi Practically Muslims. Most. All right, bro. Let me, let me ask you a question in Bengali. Tomar Kata Bhaibon. Amar Bhaibon and Thin Bhai, Thin Boin. Ami included. Ami Dui Nombor Guru. Okay, okay. Rami, bro, do you want to assume what we said, bro? Nah, bro, I don't want to guess. I'm going to sound stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I was just asking him if he has uh, any siblings, bro. Yeah, that was, that was my first guess, though. 
That was your first guess? Yeah, I know you're going to say that now. <laughs> right on. So, Brother Dilly Hussain, let's go right into the meat of the matter. A lot of people have been, as Muslims, caught in this, I guess, tug of war. Who do I support? Russia and Ukraine, right? It's not an easy of a decision innately to a lot of people like, let's say, the Israeli and Palestinian conflict, right? Or the China and Uyghur mm-hmm. Muslims, right? So, where do you mm-hmm. come into this picture? So, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salam ala rasulillah, rabbi shahli sadri wa yasili amri wa hlulubtatim bilisani yafqahu qawli. This whole kind of like, what side should Muslims take? Uh, the NATO, US, West back to Ukraine or Russia? So Five Pillars actually held a debate just last week on this very subject and we're going to do a part two because Muslims seem to be very conflicted over this. Even there's the awam, which is the lay people, then there is obviously states and governments. Even Muslim states and governments, of which there are 52, they're split over it. There's a UN vote today. It was neither here nor there. There was no major majority there, yeah? Now, personally speaking, my brother, the only Muslims who should be in a position to take a side because it directly affects them would be the Muslims of Shishan and Crimea and that region. Because... That conflict directly impacts them in a real way. And then by extension, it would then affect the Muslims of Bosnia, Herzegovina, because we know that if Russia is outright victorious in Ukraine, it will embolden the Serbian nationalist Kafar and then make them want to start another genocide. So for those Muslims, they may have to take a side because it affects them. Do you understand? Mm. For us Muslims sitting in the West or anywhere else in part of the world, do we need to take a side? I would respectfully say no. And I would add to that by those who like citing Surah Arum, that the fact that the Sahaba and the Prophet were rejoicing when the Roman Byzantines were victorious over the, the Persians, there's a very unique context to this. Number one, at that time, neither the Persians nor the Romans had oppressed and occupied Muslims. Number two, the loyalty or the support for the Romans was based on Aqidah. They were Christians, Ahlul Kitab, they were closer to us in Creed than the Zoroastrians, who the pagans of Mecca were backing. So I've seen a lot of people use this example. It doesn't count, yeah? Here we have two states, and let's say, and let's add to this story, Ukraine is not free or innocent of Muslim blood. Mm. It sent the third biggest unit as part of NATO to Iraq, yeah? Let's not forget that also, only four, five, six years ago, President Zelensky, the current Ukrainian media politician, he tweeted basically backing Israel, saying that Israel is being bombarded by missiles from Gaza, something along those lines, right? And there was a Muslim brother who tweeted him that many years ago and said, watch the ride when that happens to your doorstep. Lo and behold, it's come. So no one is innocent or free of Muslim blood here. Right, so therefore, why do we need to? There is no such thing as a lesser evil when there is an option not to choose any evil, right? And the list of crimes, the list of crimes of both sides and their supporters is quite frankly endless. If you allow me just a minute to quickly just give our viewers and listeners an insight into this, Russia was always regarded as the arch enemy of the Uthmani Khilafah, it was never Britain and France, it was the Russians who were seen in terms of constant aggression, right. And then we go into the brutal 45 to 50 years of communist rule under the Soviets and their satellite states in Central Asia, the Caucasus and the Balkans, where Islam was quite, quite frankly eradicated yeah, from the public space. Yeah? Then we go what Russia did in Chechnya, 
what they did with their back to Serbs against the Bosnians and the fact that they have martyred hundreds and thousands of Muslims of Ashan, right? Mm. So, for, for, so for all those Sheikh Imran Hussein loving anti-imperialist Muslims, calm yourself. Your wala and barar is to the Muslims, not to any kind of anti-imperialism is mm. not our furqan. That is not our criteria. Arami, I love you to bits, my brother. Al-Aqsa is close to our heart. But we similarly say to the Palestinians and those who back two-state solution or one party over the other, when you secularize and nationalize a cause, that's not our furqan. Sorry, yeah? No matter how bad the oppression is, that's not our furqan. Our furqan and our wala and bara is to Allah, his message and the ummah, first and foremost. So on that basis, Muslims who are not directly impacted outside of that region don't need to take a side. And mm. that's what the West and America, NATO, Yanni, I'm not even going to sit here and give you guys a list of things that they've done. It's just, it's too long. Mm. So no, no one needs to take a side. There is no side to take. Watch back, sit back, kick back, watch what's going on and make dua, make dua for the oppressed and the innocent of Ukraine. This is what we do. We are on the side of those who are oppressed and for those who are victims of injustice. It's not, mm. it's, it, it, it's not rocket science. It, that, that, so the fact that we've got Chechens under Kadyrov fighting Tatars and Chechens of Ukraine, Muslims fighting Muslims. Now there's a whole debate as to Kadyrov's politics, his treachery over the Mujahideen and how he basically wiped them out so he can cement his power. And mm. then there's, a, there's a so many, but the point of the matter is these are bearded men who are saying Takbir and the Shahada before going into battle and they're killing each other. And do you guys know that just yesterday, that the national security um, uh, representative of Ukraine confirmed that the special Chechen unit that was sent by Putin to assassinate Zelensky was wiped out. Do you know how they were wiped out? FSB informed Ukraine that, yeah, we're sending a Chechen unit to whack out your president. They whacked him out. So what about that for treachery? Do you understand? Wallahi, when would we ever, when would we ever realize that neither of these states and powers are our allies? Allah tells us in the Quran, they are allies of one another. So why do you seek victory from them? In fact, any viewers and listeners who are watching, tell me a time in Islamic history. Tell me a time in Islamic history from the time of the Prophet to now when a non-Muslim came to liberate Muslims in the manner in which we understood liberation within our history. Never. So why we continue to turn to them, I get it, for respite, for Short-term wins, PR wins, I get all of that. Mm. But in terms of liberation and victory, la, we, we, without overtly saying it, we know how and when that will happen. That's not going to happen from UN and NATO and these men. No way. Alhamdulillah. That was a really good answer because a lot of people think by default, I always have to have a stance. I always have to pick a side. And what you're saying is for all of these things that don't directly affect us, nor are they impacting our lives, nor are we the most learned in, we don't have to jump the gun we don't have to pick a side immediately we can chill out for a bit so alhamdulillah i want rami to give his input too and his insight and then inshallah we can backtrack and you can tell us where this really started from the whole russian and ukrainian conflict subhanallah that was honestly a really really brilliant answer alhamdulillah and uh that's something i found myself leaning towards since the beginning like how do you really like it's one non-muslim versus another non-muslim like what can you really say about that except for what you mentioned about those who are oppressed and innocent people uh, that is essentially what Islam, you know, would 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 stand for in this kind of situation. But subhanAllah, I, in my class yesterday, we were discussing the the you know khilafah and Islamic rule and all of that. And I just want to mention it's wallah, it's absolutely insane that 
we had a khilafa a hundred years ago. A hundred years ago, the Muslims had a khilafa system. The same system the Prophet himself started 1400 years ago, continued for 1300 years and only collapsed about a hundred years ago. People kind of have this, this, this notion or feeling that, you know, Russia, Britain, America, Canada, all these nations were so powerful for like thousands of years and bro, they only got power maybe a few hundred years ago and they've only been really powerful for 100 or 200 years or so. It's like the Muslims were in power for so, so long. So now watching, you know, them fight, it's like, it's, it's crazy, subhanAllah, in my opinion. SubhanAllah. America, Lord, I'm, America yeah, 80 years. America 80 years, Ikhwan. America mm. has only been a superpower in that level for 80 years. And... I want to just quickly recite a, 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 a narrate a story from the Sira, which I'm sure many of mm. uh, listeners and viewers will be aware of. During the Battle of Khandak, when the Confederate Arab, state, uh, Arab pagan Arab tribes had gathered and united, and they had surrounded Medina, and the conditions were very difficult. It was cold, there was shortage of food, they were under siege, right? And the Prophet ﷺ gave the glad tidings to his Sahaba about the opening of Persia and Rome. The Munafiqeen, who are amongst the ranks of the Muslims, amongst themselves, they were saying, look at Muhammad, we can barely go to relieve ourselves uh, without thing, and he's given his companions the glad tidings of Persia and a room. Lo and behold, within 20 years, we had already taken those lands. So, mm. and these, and arguably, arguably, I know that's like pre-modern times, right? I get it. But one could argue there were far vaster empires that have come and gone, right? So mm. that is the sunnah of Allah. Some people, so, 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 everyone has their time. But as uh, Dre used to say, aftermath having the last laugh, it will be with the Muslims, inshallah. Yeah. Inshallah. Allahumma ameen. Yo, Rami, uh, so my contacts bro, are acting up, bro. I can't read the text, so I'm going to put these comments up. Do you mind reading them, inshallah? Yeah. We can get Brother Dili Hussein's uh, input. Yeah, inshallah. To be honest, I think the most angering issue right now is the blatant racism openly being shown in the media towards immigrants slash Africans and Muslims. Yes, we're going to get into that, inshallah. Inshallah. Uh, thank you for the super chat. May Allah destroy both countries, escalate the conflict, make the allies both sides. And... <laughs> I don't know if I want to read this anymore, man. <laughs> well, and let the destruction be a relief to our, our, our chests and a healing to our heart. Okay. I mean, I think. I mean, to the end bit, to the end bit. There's like some some nerd bro in like a, a Google, you know, YouTube, uh, you know, cubicle right now being like, got them, you know, yeah, flag I mean, them right now. Another super chat. <laughs> some preachers are to be believed. It would have uh, to be said that the companions were unjust and merciless when they rejoiced at the victory of the Romans over the Persians. So that's right, Melvin, Melvin Jogon. Yeah, that, that's what the what brother mentioned at the beginning, actually, subhanAllah. And what I wanted to mention, not only you know could we see these empires as being more vast, but look at the Muslims, bro. What were the Muslims compared to them? What was the Muslim empire at the time compared to Rome and, and Persia? These are like, they, why, why were they not conquered? Because they were in the middle of the desert, because they were sheep herding Bedouin Arabs that people didn't care about because they were tribalistic. So when they showed up at their doorstep, like, yo, what's up? It's like, what the heck is this? And then they lost. And then the Muslims beat them and then gained that power, subhanAllah. So mm -hmm. like, I heard one comparison. It's like, it's like the Eskimos defeating Russia in America today. 
literally because the Arab, the pagan Arabs of that time were seen as degenerates, backward, regressive, you know, mm. tribalistic, uh, insignificant, a land that was barren and desert that wasn't worthy of kind of even conquering. We just left it. Mm. The Persian and the Romans had their beef, beef in Asham and they just allowed like Arabia, which is like no one cares, right? And it emerged, emerged from this land in the space of 10 to 15 years, a force that has will keep its print in mankind from now until the day of judgment. As yeah. such, and such, and such is our history, brothers. Such is our history. And such is the lessons that we take from the various times that we too have tasted defeat uh, throughout 14th century. So there's lessons to be taken either way. We can glorify our history because there's a lot to glorify it about. But there's also lessons to take from our history as well. Yeah, mm. 100%. SubhanAllah. Uh, Sister Salah says, yes, 100%. It's not an easy topic to understand. You'd have to go back seven plus years to understand what is happening between the two countries. It's not easy to say one is better than the other, unfortunately. Yeah, 100%. It's like we're not, it's yeah. not like, like the brother mentioned, like Palestine and Israel. It's, it's like two non-Muslim countries. How can you really say, you know, one or the other when they both committed horrible atrocities in their entire existence? And subhanAllah, one thing I want to mention is we, we mentioned like the Eskimos, right? Conquering Russia in America and how crazy that would be. We compared it to the, the Muslims at the time, the Prophet and the Sahaba, radiallahu anhum. Uh, and they were seen as, like you said, you know, tribalistic and backwards and, you know, all these, you know, vile terms. Uh, I find it crazy that, subhanAllah, that's how people see uh, the leaders of Afghanistan right now. That's how we see them right now, that they're just, you know, backwards and all this stuff. So, subhanAllah, I remember there being a hadith. I don't know if it's authentic or not. So, if you know it is or isn't, please, you know, either of you let me know. But I remember hadith talking about that. There will come black flags from Khorasan, which is basically Afghanistan. Um, who fight with Imam Mahdi and like along his side and everything? Khorasan, not Afghanistan. Khorasan. Khorasan. Are, are they not like, the same? So, yeah. So there's so, so there's two narrations of the black flags and the warm. Uh, so there's three. There's one about the black flags coming from uh, Khorasan. Now Khorasan, uh, historically speaking, is not the Khorasan in Iran. It's modern day Iran, all the way stretching through Central Asia into Afghanistan. Then there's another hadith about the warm air of revival coming from him. Now that's modern day Pakistan, Bangladesh, India, and also North Afghanistan. So there's various uh, hadith pertaining to that region mm. and inshallah revival coming from that region. Now ulama have said, have these prophecies been fulfilled already? Because the Abbasids, their flags were black and they emerged from that land. We had the Delhi Sultanate and the Mughals who had already conveyed the message of Islam and had taken it there. Um, but I am of the more of the position, naturally, because we're South Asians, that obviously we still got, you know, the end times might be coming from those those areas under our under our leadership. Yeah, yeah. Inshallah, this is going to be the last one that we read before uh, Brother Dili Hussein goes in. Inshallah. There is no moral side in this war. The only consideration is practically or practicality. Prag pragmatically, this is the end of the Mackinder containment. Yeah. Uh, of the Eurasian heartland, it is comprehensively failed. What, what is um, I mean, I, I, I mean, look, th th look. Let, let's first set up some frameworks. Um, let's set up a framework and let's accept hmm. certain undeniable truths and facts. Yeah. The United States remains the only superpower that is able to set the, the rules of the game. Yeah, and this is an analogy that I use all the time when I give talks at Islamic societies, at universities, and MSAs. 
For those of you who struggle to understand the multi-complexities of global politics, let me break it down for you in the most realist terms. Yeah? We've all been to school, lads, yeah? All of us have been in schools. And we've been in playgrounds. And playgrounds always have top boys. The top boy could be the one that's popular with the girls. The top boy could be the one that's the most best at sports. The top boy could be the one that's the most physically the strongest. The top boy could be the bully. The top boy could be the one who generally is clever, smart, uh, but the same. The point is, we have top boys in playgrounds. You, you right? sound like you're describing America, bro. Yeah, the, the point I'm trying to say is, there were five victors to World War II. Mm. America, Britain, France, China, and the UK. After they defeated the Nazi and the Japanese, they were then, literally, they were known as the policemen of the, of the world, right? That's why they are the permanent security members of the UN. Nothing happens in this country, I mean, in the world, in terms of all the other nation states that, are, that exist, without the tacit, direct or indirect approval of these said states. Yeah? America obviously emerged as the biggest of the four, right? And they essentially set the rules of the game of global politics because the entire global economy and the capitalist model is pinned on the dollar. Yeah? Now, given that situation, what's happening in Ukraine and Russia at the, at the moment, it does bring into question the balance of power. Can things shift? And there is a conversation to be had about what does that mean for Muslim countries who can play one superpower against the other. Because if we have a marketplace of superpowers offering the developing world or global south or the Muslim world, wherever you want to word it, you've got competing superpowers who are at war with each other, who are sanctioning each other, and they're essentially weakening each other, it actually favors the developing countries. Because there's a market now. There's a, it's not America run the show and set the rules of the game. It's now competing. Mm -hmm. So when they're busying themselves in this manner, it does create an atmosphere or an environment or at the very least, at the very least, a conversation, a glimpse of a vision of what the world may look like when USA is not the top boy of the playground. So that, that is a conversation to be had. And Turkey especially, Turkey especially, due to its location, due to its history in the region, due to its somewhat control of the Bosphorus, is in position to perhaps lose or gain significantly from this conflict. 100%, 100%. Do you want to backtrack and give also in a glimpse or in a nutshell the whole Ukrainian and Russian conflict and NATO and the treaties that the U.S. has broken and all that? I mean, just to just, I mean, for those of you who've not done like a European history or Cold War history, in short, when the USSR emerged, it had various satellite states, right, which was part of its empire, right? It had communist regimes in these countries, and essentially it was entirely subservient uh, to the USSR, the Soviet Russians, and essentially their foreign policy was in, in alignment with what Russia and the USSR would say. Um, and it, it create, uh, they acted as a buffer. So all these Central Asian countries, the Balkan countries, Ukraine and other Eastern European countries, all these countries acted as a buffer, as a protection zone, political and military, for Soviet Russia against the West. Yeah? NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, was formed, created, led by the US and Britain and others, to combat and to prevent the spread of communism. Right? Now, when communist Russia fell, 
1989 under the under the leadership of uh, Gorbachev, right? And then of course we know that the Mujahideen were victorious against them in, in Afghanistan. That obviously now put Russia in a position where it was once or at least saw itself as a global superpower with the ideology of communism. And ever since then, the arrival of Putin, he wants to relive and, and, and recreate that kind of network of influence. He foresees that kind of traditional uh, style of Russian empirehood. And that is what he's trying to establish. On the flip side, he would argue, though, NATO over the last 10 years has, in, has increased its military presence in its border, in its border countries, Latvia. Poland and other countries. And now there were conversations about Ukraine potentially uh, having, you know, warming or, or having a neutral position towards NATO. Now, Ukrainians have immense and, you know, uh, similarities to Russia. Culturally, religiously, linguistically, there's a lot of similarity. Russia essentially sees Ukraine as part of its own country. Right. Um, mm. As a part, unlike other issues, so for example, Russia would not see Central Asian countries as part of its own. Why? Because they're mainly Muslim and they all look different, uh, they eat different, they follow a different religion. But with Ukraine, it, see, it, it literally sees it as part of Russia. Right. And it has moved into Russia. And obviously, Crimea 2014, when my colleague Russia Muhammad Saleh went out there. And he said that basically, look, these guys, first of all, Stalin wiped out about a quarter of a million Tatar Muslims from Crimea, like, wiped them out, mm. killed them, wiped them out, yeah? Uh, ethnically cleansed Crimea of Tatar Muslims, yeah? And then, and then basically, it always saw Ukraine as part of, its, part of its body and limbs. So now when NATO is buffering its presence up in neighboring countries, if, you know what, Putin must have thought, you know what, I can't risk this now, it's come way too close to home. I'm moving in. But at the same time, Putin has smelt weakness. He saw mm. the way Af America pulled out of Afghanistan. Yeah. He's seen that uh, uh, populist politics is on the rise in Europe. There's Brexit and there's all kinds of other madness happening in Europe. This is a prime time to move in. And this has always been the sunnah of Russia, by the way. For centuries, Russia has always, seen, has always been seen by its fellow European counterparts as a, as a bit of an incenic meek. Yeah, meaning it's not modernized itself to kind of compete and, and, uh, and, and liken itself to Western Europeans. Because if you think about it, the Tsar of Russia was related to the royal family of Britain, who were related mm. to the royal family of Germany. They come from one clan. So the point here is that Russia's always been seen as a bit different, a bit booky, a bit, a bit old-fashioned, you know what I mean? Yeah. And there's not much, there's not much foreplay in their foreign policy. There's no they'll just come in and they just do what they need to do. There's no divide and rule. There's no warning mm. shots. Russia just comes in and does what it does, but it chooses its moments. Sometimes it's paid off, sometimes it hasn't. And that's the way of Russia. That's why there's always a saying in um, European politics and the discourse of your politi European politics is you don't poke the Russian bear. When you poke the Russian bear and he moves, it can work in his favor, but he'll mash up Europe as well. And historically, we've seen those two things. So in short, in short, NATO, led and created by the US and other Western powers, were created after World War II to combat the spread of communist Russia, right? When communist Russia fell in the late 80s, in 1990, 1990 1991, the last battle was obviously in Afghanistan. 
Russia always had an idea. Look, similarly, the Muslims, don't we have aspirations? We were a people who had a civilization. We are a people who had vast empires and lands and control. And we had it longer than the Russians. And we aspire for it. Do we not? Mm. We pray for it. We work for it. So naturally, the Russians and the Pafan are no different. Mm. So Russia always had this. They saw themselves and they positioned themselves as, those, as in leaders of Europe. And when NATO was slowly, slowly, slowly moving closer to its borders, um, you know, Turkey has US military bases with nuclear warheads. Poland has it. Latvia's not got warheads, but it's got NATO presence. It's like, no, nah, man, I can't allow this. I need to now move in. Now, that's the argument presented by Russia. The other argument is that, no, we've always said that Ukraine can never be a part of NATO. It could be neutral, but it can never be a part of NATO. And EU membership was never a real discussion until now. So in a crux, that's the argument at face value. But I think there's always a lot more to play at hand. For example, Russia is the biggest supplier of natural gas in Europe. And mm. countries like Germany and Italy and others are huge recipients, right? Um, many Western European countries secretly buy Russian artillery and weapons, yeah? So there's a lot, there's a lot at play here, right? And I, and I believe we can never conclusively choose one analysis over the other. Because even the information that we're being fed from either side, and let's be honest, we're not in the West, we're not really hearing or getting much of the Russian side, but the war information is never accurate. There'll be things that'll come out in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years about, oh, okay, so that's what it's about. That's the story in Balamori. Hmm. SubhanAllah, man, that was very comprehensive. We got two questions that uh, Rami, bro, if you want to address. So long as the Muslim world has the will, a, a super union is entirely possible. We need to actively desire and work for it so that we don't become playthings of Eurasia and the Atlantics. Brother Jay Perez, Jazakallah Khair for becoming a member. He says, does Dili have any recommended books or other resources for genuine info on the situation and history overall that involve Muslims? Any essential readings Muslims should have their or have on their shelves? Jazakallah Khair. Uh, there's various books that I can suggest, but there's just too many to mention. Maybe after the show, I can send you a list. You lot can post in the comments list, inshallah. Inshallah. Okay, sounds good. Last one. Russia is entirely paranoid since the road to Moscow would sort of be flat without, and without ge uh, geographical barriers. So they have always had a mass invasion from the West every 100 years. Or attempted invasions. We, 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 forget, we forget that Russia was essentially the reason why Adolf Hitler and the Nazis were defeated in World War II when they had the standoff in Stalingrad and, and, and made the mistake of trying to fight the Russians in the winter. Uh, it, it, it was it was basically Stalin and Russia that battered them, and then it was the Red Army that walked into uh, uh, Berlin and, and basically waved the flag of the Allied forces. It's irony, man. Subhanallah. Look, there's I forgot which verse it was. There's a, there's a verse that I posted. I forgot. Subhanallah. Allah actually tells us that when they're not fighting us, you know, when they're not fighting the Muslims, yeah, they are actually disunited amongst themselves, and that disunity is severe. And Allah actually concludes by saying, because these are a people who have no hope. So when they're not fighting us, they're fighting each other. Europe's history is a bloody one, Ikhwa. It is a bloody history. Like, like, yes, the Muslim world and the Muslim majority world wasn't perfect. But wallahi, we did not have the type of wars and bloodshed that the Europeans mm. had. 
and that's coming from the, from the split of the Roman Empire right through to the medieval kingdoms, right? Think about this for a moment. Yeah, think about this for a moment. The Pope, uh, Pope Urban makes an announcement for the European kingdoms to make, uh, you know, uh, religious war towards the Holy Land, yeah? 1096, he said the savages, the barbarians, the Turks, the Saracens, they've all ravaged the Holy Land and, and our Christian brethren need your help. What did, they, what did these men do when they started going towards the Mediterranean? And they slaughtered and pillaged and ravaged uh, their fellow Christian lands. Yeah, these are people, quite frankly, when it comes to warfare, they're bloody. It's a bloody history. Lest we forget, World War I and World War II were not religious wars. They were secular wars led by Christian uh, Western white European countries. Yeah, millions upon millions of deaths was never under the rule or banner of religion, let alone Islam. So people can say what they want to say. When you give them the historical facts, they don't like it. The point of the matter is that Europe has a bloody history. It's actually genetically within them, for some reason or another, to always fight, kill and pillage. Governments, regimes, I'm not saying the people, they are good people. There are good people amongst all people, just like there are bad people amongst the Muslims. But for some reason, when Europeans get into power, right, they're always looking to murk each other off. They'll murk the Muslims off and they'll murk each other off. That's a great point. They, are, they have been very hypocritical. So after I read this, inshallah, we'll go into that. Europeans have always viewed Russia as the other and will continue to do so. They will never thus be unified. This is also why the white nationalist pan-European pursuit is a farce. Farce? Uh, that's de it's, de it's debatable. It's debatable because at the end of the day, they're allied in two world wars. Britain and France had no problem allying with Russia. Had it not been for the Bolshevik Revolution... Russia would have remained in the alliance and would have would have seen through the end of the First World War. They're allied again in World War II against the Nazis. So, no, it would be a lie that they're incapable of allying with one another. They have a lot more in common than they do with Muslims and non-Christians and non-whites. <laughs> so there's a lot more for them to unify upon. But it goes back to that point that I made earlier. Yes, Western Europe sees Russia a bit like a weirdo, like a muscular weirdo, yeah? Like... Like you've not kind of like modernized and just 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 got with the program, you understand? And 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 see their their manner of diplomacy, colonialism as something that's dated, problematic, not representative of the European way. And the European way is, of course, if you look at their style of colonialism, specifically speaking, Britain, the country where I was born in, and also colonized our lands. Fayyad, is that there the Britain Britain was never about brutality first. Britain was always about divide and rule. Let us find an agent or a chamcha to, to, to oppress on our behalf. Yeah? France, their sunnah was this. Warning one, warning two, warning three, we're going to wipe you all out. That's how France works, yeah? Russia, obviously, I've already mentioned, there's no foreplay in their foreign policy. They'll just come and they'll kill you, they'll wipe you out. Mm. Um, so, 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 and, 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 and Western Europe can still find that uh, problematic. And of course, there's the ideological differences uh, that exist from the Cold War. Yeah, very well said, Mashallah. Very well said. And and it, it, they'll never fully be united unless they, you know, are one under one ruler. So long as they are different nations with their own personal, uh, you know, 100%. trust, they will always have disagreements. Because everyone's, you know, it's, I don't want to relate it to this verse, but the verse that comes to mind is when Allah Subhanahu wa Taala mentioned how they've been gods with Allah. They each would have tried to, you know, outstrip the other. It's kind of like that with nations. As long as there's other nations, other powers, they're each going to try and get on top. It's very, very. Uh, you know, unique to humans to be like that. Um, now, you mentioned before that 
it's basically very hypocritical uh, of Europe to shed all this blood and you know and cause all these wars uh, and not really look at it as it, uh, in the same light they look at like you know Muslims when they've gone to war and, and things like that. Another thing I find very hypocritical is the news reporters when they say this isn't Afghanistan. This isn't, uh, you know, Palestine. This isn't Iraq or Iran that is completely in, in shambles, third world developing country. This is Europe. These are white people. These are Christians. As if Europe wasn't completely regressed and went through the, the, the dark ages. You know, I would say not too long ago. Mm. You know what it is, bro, yeah? I wouldn't have a problem if, you know, because let's look at the media outlets that have been doing these reports. Yeah. BBC, Sky News, NBC. ITV, Al Jazeera, yeah? Now, if these media outlets were, they they, they identified and made it public that we are a Christian media outlet, Mm -hmm. yeah? Mm -hmm. Or a white ethnic race-centric outlet, that kind of punditry makes sense. Let me give you an example. Five Pillars, the news organization that I founded in 2013 with my colleague Rosha Saleh, if we went and did a report somewhere, we will come from a Muslim angle unashamedly because we've already made it clear. We are a Muslim news website. Our news and our current affairs and our analysis is seen from the prism and framework of Islam and Muslims. So that would make sense. yeah. But these lot claim to be secular, liberal, uh, non-partisan, impartial, but then they're talking like whites this, Christians this, blonde hair, blue eyes. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't make sense. So that's the problem number one. If these were Christian outlets, it makes sense. If they were white supremacist outlets, it would make sense. But since they're not, they're mainstream media outlets that are not supposed to take positions like these. Theoretically, they're not supposed to take positions like these, yet their true colours are coming out. But look, I will say this. Anyone who believes that the Europeans, white European non-Muslims, wouldn't sympathize with the Ukrainians and that they would sympathize, that they should or could sympathize with Muslims equally, you're deluded. Our issue is not that they sympathize with them more than the Muslims. In the same way that the Muslim will sympathize more with the Muslims than the non-Muslims. But there's, but, but, but there's a very important context here. Yeah? Muslim countries don't gallivant around the world waging wars and championing freedom and equality and democracy for all, creating refugees, creating the destabilization, the wars, the sanctions, uh, and the destabilization, to then turn around and say, nah, you can't come to our countries. Name me a Muslim country who does that. There's not a single Muslim country from the 50 weak, measly, embarrassing states. None of them do that. None of them go to other parts of the world, claim to present a particular worldview, kill, pillage, and rape, and loot, in that name, create refugees and then say, no, you can't come. And before we have any racist gammons and Karens commenting, if they do, let me say something to you. The biggest recipients of Muslim refugees are Muslim countries. Lebanon, Turkey, Jordan, Bangladesh, Pakistan. The biggest recipients of Muslim refugees are those countries. No, don't ever let anyone say to you, oh, why don't they go to Saudi then? No, Muslim countries are already taking Muslim refugees in their millions. Rami, you're Palestinian, Habibna, Lebanon, Jordan, yeah? Yeah, Jordan. Jordan. They, the the Rohingya, Rohingya, where are they? They're in Bangladesh. Bangladesh, yeah. The, the, the Afghans, where are they? They're in Pakistan. The Syrians, where are they? They're in, they're in Turkey and Lebanon. I've just got back from the Bakar Valley. I've seen the Palestinian refugee camps. 
We have, um, subhanAllah, the Tabuk refugee camp in Syria. So don't let any non-Muslim commentator say, well, why don't you like, go to your own countries? First and foremost, we are going to the, our neighboring countries and they are taking us in. Number mm. two, Europe caused the wars. Directly or indirectly, you contribute towards the wars in these lands that have made them destitute and you, they rock up on your doorstep and you treat them like animals. See, that's the problem that Muslims have and we should highlight. Our problem is not that you favor them and you treat them better than, or you sympathize with them more. That's not the issue here and it shouldn't be. The issue is that you claim to be equal. You claim to be consistent. And you wage wars in our lands and then tell us, now nah, we don't want to take them in. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? That's the problem. The problem mm -hmm. isn't that they favor them or they like them more than the Muslims. It's the inconsistency and the mistreatment after causing the wars in those lands and creating the refugees to then now say we don't want them. Yeah. yeah. So th that's, that's how it has to be seen. And, and, and just on that point about the media coverage, the media coverage is the media coverage. If the BBC said that we're a Christian European uh, um, uh, media outlet, that kind of commentary makes sense. If the, NB if the NBC said that, yes, we're a, a, a white supremacist or white-focused, white-centric or wasp-centric, whatever you want to call it, that kind of punditry makes sense. But these are supposed to be impartial. Yeah. They're supposed to be non-partisan. Yeah. You can't use that. Like, that punditry is crazy. And that is it's your true colours coming down. So yeah. say it loud and clear. Say it loud mm -hmm. and clear. We don't want Muslims in our countries. Mm -hmm. We want to go to your countries to rape, kill and wage wars and take your resources but once we create them, we don't want you in our countries. Say it. Say it. Be open. We can accept brutal honesty. And we already know that what's in your hearts is already worse than what we already know. So, so, so that's the position we take. Any Muslim out there that thinks they should treat us the same or that they should sympathize with the same, you're deluded. They, they're not. Because human beings don't. Human beings gravitate towards those who look like them, eat like them, pray like them, speak like them, worship like them. So that's normal. The issue here is the lies, the inconsistency, the hypocrisy. That's the issue here. And that's the point we need to continuously highlight. Our point isn't that you guys are favoring the Ukrainians, you're sympathizing, mm. your, 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 your tears are shedding because that. No, our issue is what you claim and what you do and then what you don't do. That's the problem. Very beautifully said. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, I do have to bounce. I, will, I wish I could stay and, and, and you know, speak to you guys about this more, learn more you know, on the live. But I'll watch you guys, inshallah, after. Uh, last thing I say, that's the, honestly the probably the worst part because they they essentially what they do is they create an enemy, they go and fight that enemy and they benefit from fighting that fake enemy that they created, uh, and then they come back as if they're the heroes to have basically this narrative that you are secular, you are so fair, you are so just, um, while not being fair or just is the perfect thing that they they you know they need to you know foresee these plans of Rami. Before you go, brother, yeah, it was an absolute pleasure meeting you, my brother. And inshallah, this is the first of many meetings to come. But listen to this one. Quick one. There's all of a sudden lots of talks now in British media about sending in the Mujahideen. Oh, okay. So, so, so it's convenient now. You don't want to send the Mujahideen when it's cannon fodder and, it's, and it suits your needs. There's one caller that actually rang in LBC radio and said, send the Pakis in. Send the Paki Mujahideen in. So we're cannon fodder, man. We're cannon fodder. My forefathers who fought for the British Empire, may Allah forgive them. May Allah forgive them for whatever reasons they decide to fight for them. But the point here is we are seen as cannon fodder in the same way the Maghrebis fought for the French. Cannon fodder. Cannon fodder, man. Yeah, bro, absolutely. bro. Never thought of it in that perspective. Cannon fodder, man. Cannon fodder. That's why there were Muslims who did mutiny against the Brits. 
the mutiny of Singapore, the mutiny of Baghdad, when 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 Indian Muslims refused. Bro, the British, the British Empire, the World War, never used to tell the Indian Muslim they should come up against the Ottomans. Do you know that? Until man rocked up in the battlefield, like, raw. Them are not making other. Like, who are these? Like, oh, God, it's the Ottomans, and they should be mutiny, bro. Them man were killed. Yeah. So the point I want to make is, we've always, we've always ever have been cannon fodder. We've always ever have been yeah. cannon fodder from a colonial empire point of view. Yeah. And, 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 and the same is happening with the Chechens who are fighting for Russia, and sadly the same is happening for those Chechen brothers and Tatar Muslims who are fighting for Ukraine. But I would respectfully say that the Tatars, the Tatar Muslims, and they and they, and have more of a basis to defend their lands than Kadyrov's people going and fighting under the banner of Russia. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very good point, Shah. Rami, bro. Yeah. Rami, yeah. we'll see you tomorrow at 7 p.m. For anyone that doesn't know, tomorrow we are reacting to uh, the debate between Mohammed Hijab and Ayn Hirsi. So stay tuned for that, inshallah. So Rami, I'll see you tomorrow. All right. May Allah bless you both. Dili Hussain, have you honestly, bro? It's been an honor and a pleasure. I wish you could stay longer and learn more. Uh, inshallah, we'll, we'll do this again very soon. Inshallah, it's all right. Man, subhanAllah. I want to take a quick pause right now. This might be an offhanded question, but. You can give your thoughts on this, inshallah, if you want. So a few years ago, when I was new to the Dao scene, this is where I found you, right? It was the talk that you had on Good Morning Britain with Piers Morgan. And you were on, I want to say shamelessly, but I feel that's a, that's a bad word. But you were ruthlessly, you were unapologetically, I guess, pushing the needle forward for what we believe in and what we stand for when it comes to, you know, the alphabet people in schools and all this in terms of the education. Now, I understand at that time, what he was saying was he was somewhat opposing your views, right? And that video, you know, went viral. And I find that the issue with liberalism, liberal secularism, and with the media is they don't have one instruction manual. They don't have divine revelation. They don't have objective truth. Because his point completely changed in a recent, uh, I say recent, but it was after that, in a, in a debate he was having with someone. And she was saying that trans women, so biological men, can participate in sports and it would be equal. And he was saying this is absolutely absurd. And I think the issue with, with liberal secularism and the media is they don't have one objective stance. They're always willy-nilly. They're always changing by the tune of, of you know, the, the current, you know, status quo and the norms. So what are your thoughts on that? Um, so just to comment on the Pierce Morgan and Good Morning Britain show, um, that interview was the first time that I appeared on the mainstream media and I've, and I've appeared on various shows, primetime shows many times, uh, American and, and uh, British and, and global. But that was the first time where I was asked by the parents who were protesting in Birmingham to go and speak and represent on their behalf. There were a group of parents that said, look, we feel that brother Dili Hussein and Five Pillars, since they've supported us from a media point of view, whilst we've been getting witch hunted and labelled and, 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 you know, made to look like bigots and, and, and homophobes, we would like Five Pillars and brother Dili Hussein to go and speak on the show on our behalf. So that put a lot of pressure on me. See, I felt that my contribution and my engagement with Piers Morgan and Mike Wilkinson, 
the other shaitan, um, was quite relaxed. It wasn't my normal self. And the reason why and the reason why I had to do that was because I was not representing five pillars. I was representing the parents. And the parents said to me, you just need to convey three things. Please do not proselytize the alphabet ideology to our children. If you're going to teach them anything, you need to consult us. Number three, in the same way that the alphabet people are a protected group under a particular piece of legislation, so are religious groups. So those are the three points that I had to make. It wasn't about debating and having it out and because I was there to make those three points on behalf of the parents. Now, as you saw, um, it literally became 3v1, right? With Piers Morgan getting very excited. Even at one point, he turned around and said, do those parents think that it's Islamabad? I looked at him and I said, what makes you think? I said to him, I said, what makes you think? Why did you say Islamabad for Pierce? As if it's just a Pakistani problem. I go, did you not see the Jews and the Christians also protesting with the Muslims? He got stuck. And I also have to say this as well. That entire debate was 16 minutes, 23 seconds. But the, but the version they uploaded onto YouTube was 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. They cut mm-hmm. six minutes. All my shots to Pierce Morgan were taken out. And they posted that. And every time we try uploading the original version, there'd be a copyright infringement to get taken down. So the full 16-minute, 23-second debate is on the Five Pillars Facebook page because we can't upload it onto YouTube. But they uploaded a 10-minute version by making Pierce look good, and they took out all my stings and my shots. That's fine. When they lose the battle of ideas, this is what they resort to. It's not a problem. Yeah. Now, with regards to objective morality and objective truth, mm. I, I'm not surprised because when they had a Christian lesbian vicar or, or representative from the Christian faith, right? Pierce Morgan was relaxed. He actually engaged with her quite respectfully. She wasn't as no, no, sorry, correction, not a lesbian. They had a Christian, female Christian vicar who was presenting the same position as me, hmm. which is that look, you know, this is a normative position within Abrahamic traditions. There does need to be consultation with parents. That's the fair and right thing to do. At the same time, we do need to make a distinction between hate speech and uh, genuine concerns of religious communities. Yada, yada. Not say anything different to me. Oh, he was so nice and soft to her. He was so nice. Do you what I'm trying to say? So there's always a different rule for Muslims that are brown. Yeah? Even when you have a white Christian who will say the same thing to you. Let me give you another example. Brothers and sisters, you can Google Dili Hussein debates Dr. Osama Hassan from the Quillian Foundation. This was a debate from 2015 where we spoke about should we glorify British history in light of the Dresden bombing under Winston Churchill? Mm. So I came on and I said, look, I'm of Bengali heritage. He did the Bengali famine where three million people died. Yeah, by by uh, not by chance. It was something that was orchestrated Yeah, by Churchill. Three million is a conservative estimate of the Bengalis that died as a result of the, of the famine, yeah, which Winston Churchill did. How can you expect me to sit here and praise this man and say that he should be champion? It, as well as his, his racist dog, uh, you, know, you know, describing Indians as dogs and, and these kind of things. Bro, they all, the presenter, and there's a right-wing commentator called James Dellingpole, who went to Oxford University with, with David Cameron, the Prime Minister at the time, he was obviously coming at me. There was a, uh, there was a, a Professor Kate Williams from the Oxford University, who was like a left-leaning kind of, kind of historian. She agreed with me. 
She agreed with me, but she didn't get the venom that I got. She literally said, Muhammad has, Dili has made a right point. Churchill has blood on his hands. He did the Bengal famine. He's mm -hmm. not free of war crimes. He had very repulsive and racist views. I just said the same thing, Yanni. Like, how are you not lynching me on TV and then allowing next man to just get away with it? Um, um, and, and letting her, you know, just giving her an easy ride, which, by the way, her support I appreciated. I needed mm -hmm. that support because I also use that to show the double consistency. And that's secular liberals for you, bro. That's secular liberals for you. And there's a spectrum of it. And the reason why that is, is unfortunately, these are people who are inconsistent because their mm. beliefs are inconsistent. Their goalposts are constantly shifting. Why? Because they've made their nafs God. They've taken their desires as gods. The desire of men and, and, and a particular group of men and a particular type of men and a particular uh, looking and socioeconomic status of men Desire, you know, essentially dictate what the rules will be of a given society. The fact that 30 years ago in the UK that, you know, same-sex marriage and homosexual acts was a crime and could, you could be jailed if you were found to be persistent mm. on it. Mm. Then it was something that was just finable. Then it was something that was told to do it in private. Then 10 years later, you can now marry. Now you can't say nothing. You get done for hate speech. So the moral goalposts are constantly shifting. You want to accuse, so Western states commonly accuse our beloved Prophet وسلم, the most best of creation to have walked this earth. You accuse him of horrible things with regards to the marriage of Aisha. But let me say something to you all. Why is there an inconsistency in your age of consent? Mm. Why is it 14 in Spain? Why is it 16 in Britain? Why can a 12-year-old legally get married in Texas? Who are you not to talk to us about consistency? Shut up. Move on. Jog on. Don't talk to us about this and that. We have clear guidance. Alhamdulillah, we have clear guidance. And it's because you don't abandon your guidance that the message of Islam came as the final message. And of course, people who take this, when you make your nafs the source, the sharia of your law, bonnet, man, you're going to have all kinds of inconsistencies. Pierce Morgan, by the way, is a, is a serial entertainer and troll. But at the same time, look, like for example, his beef with Harry's missus, Kate, yeah? It's got nothing. It's just that she blanked him. She blanked him at a party. She never gave him the respect that she wanted, and he fancied her. That's the truth. That is Pierce Morgan's beef with Kate. Uh, not Kate. Yani, what's her name? Harry's wife. Thing, uh, uh, Megan. Yeah, Megan. That's his beef with Megan. His beef with mm. Megan was that he met her once. She never really acknowledged him again at another public gathering. So he mm. felt embarrassed. And that he fancied her. And that's his beef. Yeah. So similarly, Pierce Morgan having a pop at me whilst not having a pop at the exact of a Christian white vicar for holding the same views. It doesn't surprise me in the same way that when I was on BBC Sunday Morning Live debating uh, Dresden and, 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 and British history and whether it should be glorified. I was getting slated and lynched upon whilst the white Oxford professor said the same thing, actually defended me on TV. She didn't get slated. So it should, it's not something that should surprise us, by the way. It should, it should be something that surprises us because if we look at Quraysh and how they dealt with the Muslims in the early years of Mecca, first it was about, you know, um, give Muhammad and his people, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, talk to them, you know, try like mm. diplomacy, let's talk to them, let's go for Abu Talib and others to say, look, and second your message down, man. When that didn't work, what did they resort to? Names and labels. He's a, he, he's a madman. He's a magician. He's someone who's cursed. He's the one who splits households. That didn't work. Then what happened? 
persecution. So we know this. This is the sunnah of kuffar anyway. Mm. It is the sunnah of kuffar to be inconsistent and to be yeah. sore losers. And, I, and, and, and non-Muslims who watch this podcast, this is not towards all non-Muslims. We are talking about your rulers, your elite, your regime, your governments, your states, your policymakers, your movers and shakers. And this is why when Islam came to those lands which were Christian, they came to Islam in their droves and many of them stayed Christian and they lived prosperously under the Sharia. Mm. And Habibi, it gives me comfort to know that left will always be left and right will always be right. Falsehood will always be falsehood. Truth will always be truth. In front of Allah. You know, we don't care what the West wants to portray. They're, they have this undeniable, I guess, fetish with showing that Islam is losing. When in reality, bro, the amount of reverts every single day, bro, they're not going to show Winning, that. Bro. But when one, Winning. I guess, woman uh, from, let's say, uh, Lebanon, you know, um, I'm just saying these countries arbitrarily, guys, don't don't think I have anything against y'all. Uh, let's say publicly leaves Islam, they're going to sensationalize the crap out of this, bro. Of course. Mm-hmm. Look, I once, you know, when you look at the Uyghur situation, right? And you think to yourself that there is believed to be at least 2 million of our brothers and sisters in concentration camps, as we speak. Mm. I say this, if these one, well, if these one are people of Kalima and Taqwa and Iman, the Chinese regime wouldn't need concentration camps. The very fact that they're holding on to their Islam is the reason why there's concentration camps. The very fact that there are successive governments, left and right, center left, center right, this, that, successive all across the West, all have one thing in common, in their laws and discrimination against the Muslims. Their laws and discrimination against the Muslims from the prison of counter, counter-terrorism. And, 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 and they don't differ in that. And why do, they, why do they need that? They need that because they're seeing that Muslims are becoming practicing. We have an opposite effect. We thought these would assimilate like other groups. We thought they'd assimilate like Christians or like Sri Lankan or Indian Hindus or like Chinese atheists Mm. or like, you know, uh, Caribbean or West Indian Christians. Nah, nah. And and they realize third, fourth generation Muslims in the West diaspora are actually more religious than their forefathers that came as economic migrants. It burns Mm. them. The highest number of reverts in Europe are white women. White European women. Of course they're gonna burn. Khalas. They want to extinguish Subhanallah. They bro. want to extinguish they want to extinguish the light of Allah. <laughs> it's not gonna happen. That's fact, bro. Right when you said white women from the UK, subhanallah. You guys think he's making this up. As soon as he said that, look at this. Sister Jillian Smith writes, I'm a new Muslim, Muslim named Khadija. I'm a white and blonde from the UK. I have lived in Pakistan and long to go back there. The West is haram, and I'm sure the trumpet is going to blow very soon. Proof is in the pudding, man. You can't make this up. Can't. I'm telling you, I was with AIRA. Me, Hamza Zoltzis, and we all worked together. I was the head of department. I was the head of media and public relations for two years. And I'm telling you, the highest number of reverts are white English women. Mm. Yeah, the highest number of conversions. Yeah, and they come and they and they hold on to the deen with dear life. May Allah bless them, preserve them. May they be the mothers of the future princes and rulers of this of, of this of this continent, who like who will inshallah rule with the justice of Islam. Inshallah, they will be the women who will bo- who will have the children that will come on to rule this this continent. I believe this. I believe with so many white sisters. White women accepting white European women accepting Islam. I believe that this is this is not based on nothing. It's just something which I feel will happen. That 
You know, because if you think about it, there were 36 Ottoman sultans and khulafa. The vast majority of their mothers were white slaves, were white concubines. Mm. Do you understand? And, and many of the Ottoman khulafa and sultan were white. They were Caucasian, they're Slavic, they're, they're anything but Turks in them. Do you understand? Because their mothers were European women. I believe similarly, not that I'm making that comparison, by the way, from today's sisters. just want to clarify that today's sisters who are white European and to concubines. No, what I'm saying is that I believe that white female Muslim converts, reverts, whatever you want to call it, have a, will have a special role to play in this continent. Allahumma mm. amin, <clears throat> so um with that being said are there any other things that you want to get off in this theme that we had for the podcast today if not we can start the q a inshallah so just three points i want to make because mm -hmm. obviously the, the conversation was about essentially global politics in light of ukraine and russia um the inconsistency of secular liberalism is, is ardent advocates and so forth and generally just some things pertaining to islam and muslim and it's, it's revival First and foremost, the Ukraine and Russia conflict, I will reiterate, for those of us who are not living directly in those affected areas, there is no, there's no necessity for us to take a position. In the same way that if an invading army came to the British shores, it is not on the Muslims of India to tell us who to take sides because they've come to my doorstep now. I might have to make a choice. So similarly, it is on those Muslims of those regions who are already conflicted it is on them to make a call and make a decision. We just pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that Allah protects the innocent civilians and the Muslims of that region from the oppression uh, and violence of both sides. I mean, second point, second point about uh, the inconsistencies of secular, secular liberals and its ardents and, and its advocates and so forth, whether it's in the media, governments, parties, brothers and sisters. Being a Muslim was never supposed to be easy. Yeah, Allah tells us in the Quran, do you believe that you will not be tested in your faith? Allah's telling us we will be tested in our faith. That it's not going to be an easy ride. How dare we claim to be the torchbearers and the flag bearers of the only exclusive truth? Yeah, and not be expected and then not expect to have some heat on us. Do we not know the hadith of the, of the Ghuraba that there will come a time where holding on to Islam will be like holding on to a hot coal, that mm. Islam came strange and it will come back strange. So give glad tidings to the strangers. We know these things. Allah tells us he has set out the paradigm. The Quranic mm. paradigm is this. Iman versus kufr. Belief versus disbelief. Good versus evil. That's it. And we are in the camp of good. We are in the camp of Iman and Islam. And so therefore, when we look at the stories of the lives of the prophets, with exception, with exception to uh, Suleiman alayhi salam and Dawood alayhi salam, but that golden era of Israel, all the prophets that we are aware of, all the all the Ambiya that we are aware of, including the Prophet, faced oppression and opposition from their people. They did. Mm. So I wanted to add I wanted to add a quick point that a lot of people think, just like you said, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran writes, do they think they'll say I believe? And then they won't be tested, right? Be tested, so, yes. you know, you 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 really look at you really look at the state of the Prophet Ibrahim and we see their lives. You know, the Prophet lost all of his children except one, lost his wife early. You know, compared to when when his time was uh, near, uh, lost yeah. his father-in-law, lost loved ones. Yeah. 
right, was born without a father. So you look at all of these trials and tribulations that the Prophet, the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, got. And what makes you think you're immune as just an average Joe, as just a layman, as just Tom, Dick, and Harry today? You know, just barely making your salah. You know, or even if you're if you're on it, on it. Nowhere are we near the Prophet sallallahu And look at the the hardships that he had. So when when I really put that into perspective, I was like, bro, why do I expect things to be easy for me? Let alone easier than him, subhanAllah. Bro, just on that point, because it's important that we take these lessons, right? We know that when the Prophet وسلم, he approached uh, Waraka bin Nawfal, right? And told him about, uh, I think it was Waraka bin Nawfal or Khadija's anha's, um, uncle. I'm not sure. It was one of the two. It could be the same person. But either way, when he, when he told him about the revelation he had received for the first time from Jibreel alayhi salam, what did he say to the Prophet? He said, This is a call where your people will turn against you and they will drive you out of your out of your town and your and your area. And the Prophet was shocked. He's like, What? What, my people? But they're gonna drive me. Why? They believe me to be the most the, the most truthful. And what happened? We know about the hadith of Khabab ibn Ard. You know, when he said to when he said to the Prophet, Ya Rasulullah, ask Allah for victory, because we are suffering. And the Prophet told him how people were tested before them. So we know that Ibrahim salam, went through tests. Nuh salam's son, Lut salam's wife, hmm. Musa salam, and his people. Musa salam's life is like a blueprint. He's the most mentioned in the Quran for a reason. He lived Bani Israel, so the seas split and they worshipped the cow. How was he tested by his people? His latter, you know, the way Bani Israel, you know, tested Musa salam, is so sad. They all were opposed by their people. Hmm. They were tested by their people. Whether it is by their people from a believing point of view, which doesn't apply to the Prophet Sallam, or, or by general own, right? They were always opposed, oppressed. So what makes you think that we're going to have an easy ride? We're not. And secular liberals and all these other isms and liberals and all that spectrum, faith, just, just brace, brace yourself for inconsistencies. Raise yourself for double standards and hypocrisy. Don't be surprised. Foolish is the one that expects consistency from them. Oof, I was literally just going to say that. As, as soon as you said don't expect it, I was going to say, if anything, expect, you know, expect that if it, it is consistent, that there's something wrong with that. You know, that should, you know, alarm bell should be ringing. And I think the third, I think the third point, my brother, was on just the issue of Islamic revival, yeah? And I'm, I'm going to make it very quick. Today marks the 98th Gregorian year since the abolition of the Caliphate. For all, for all intents and purposes, for good, bad and ugly, this was a noble institution that was left to us by Rasulullah and by Abu Bakr and Omar and Uthman and Ali and Hassan. Right? May Allah be pleased with them all. This was an institution, this was an institution where Ulama classical spoke about its normative basis. There have been ulama throughout centuries that have said that the establishment of the religion is incomplete and impossible without this institution. So I will say to you, brothers and sisters, for good, bad, or ugly, for all intents and purposes, no one's saying it's a romanticized utopian society. No one ever claims that. And anyone who claims that as Muslims, please don't do that. But what we will say is this, that when Islam had a civilization, when Islam had a central authority or central authorities, when we had rulers, irrespective of whether they were tyrants or not, but had the fear of Allah in terms of ruling by Islam, 
things were very different. And as Rami said, it was only less than 100 years ago, right? And even at his most weakest time, even right at his weakest time, when the Ottoman Khalif Abdul Hamid rahimahullah, used to send warning shots to the Europeans, they used to take heed. They used to take heed to him, and that was at the most weakest time. So what I will say is that the victory of Allah is not a matter of if, it is a matter of when. Now you decide where you fit into that timeline. Do you want to be a bystander or do you want to be a contributor to this revival and this victory in whatever capacity you can contribute? That is my message to the brothers and sisters who tune into this. Man, I couldn't have even said it better, bro. That was a wonderful point to wrap up everything in this stream on, inshallah. So uh, we'll go with the, the Q&A now. Whenever it's approaching time for Maghrib, inshallah, for you, let me know and we'll quickly wrap it up, inshallah. I'll give, I'll give you five, 25 minutes if you want me. Okay, 20, 25 minutes, minutes. Then, inshallah. Okay, so first question. Oh, I really appreciate it. Okay, that's not really a question. Cool. Next. So, I'm Dili. When you mentioned the US as being the world police, would Western sanctions on Russia be a good example? Do you think Russia would respond irrationally with nuclear strikes? Um, what I said earlier on in the podcast was that the USA is one of five policemen of the world and they are definitely the most biggest powerful of the policemen. Uh, Western sanctions against Russia uh, is a double-edged sword. So all this conversation about banning them from SWIFT, uh, banking systems and so forth, they have equally said that these are going to affect our businesses as well domestically because we're heavily reliant on trade with Russia, right? Do I believe... And by the way, did you know that Putin, about four months before the invasion of Ukraine, he managed to uh, get hold of $6.4 billion cash because he anticipated sanctions. So, so, so just on a cash flow, he thought, okay, they're going to bring the heat on. Let us just have a bit of a, bit of a you know, secret stash to hold on until that time comes, yeah? So the point is, Western sanctions will hurt Russia. It is hurting Russia, it's hurting many ordinary Russians, but the point of the matter is that it's not as if Russia doesn't have any aces up its sleeve, and that's namely its natural gas, yeah? Mm -hmm. Now, would that lead to Russia starting a nuclear war? Respectfully, no. No, because quite frankly, there's enough nuclear weapons between Russia and America to blow this world over 80 or 100 times. We've still got the Day of Judgment and the major signs of the Day of Judgment coming and none of that really explains about nuclear mm -hmm. war. We've still got so many things to happen. So let's everyone relax here, yeah? We are Muslims who believe in the Day of Judgment and we've been told what those major, major 10 signs are. Mm. And none of them really include a nuclear war between America and Russia. Yes, there's mm. going to be some end-of-time wars. There'll be the coming of Isa alayhi salam, Imam Mahdi, Dajjal, Ma'ajuj, the more kind of normative mainstream position. Because I know there's like a technicality of differences in that, in that And there's, there's, these are not metaphors, brothers and sisters. A lot of people are like, yeah, Jews and Matt Jews are like, no, 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 literal. Liberalism. Literal. no, but everything no, is literal. Literal, literal. Like, like, the, like the mainstream normative Sunni position on these things that I've just mentioned is literal. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. none of that includes really a nuclear war that if it happens, and I, I'm basing this if on a hypothetical situation, nuclear war would literally mean the world's finished because that's what nuclear weapons are. And they've got enough nuclear weapons to destroy the entire world over. But I say this, I'm not ruling out the possibility of a nuclear attack, 
that would change and radically shift the balance of power in the world to somehow favor the Muslims. I'm not ruling that out. Okay, alhamdulillah. Next question. Uh, does Ukraine have missiles which it can use to bomb Russian territory? Um, not to the kind of sophisticated levels that it would like. Um, it does have kind of very basic uh, ballistic, um, very like low-level type missiles with not great ranges. But if they went to the, <clears throat> if Ukraine, if Ukraine had access to its western border, right, then I'm sure it would be able to have missiles that would, but not missiles in the sense like uh, like Western superpowers have. So the, so the long and short answer to that is no. They have they have armory and, and weaponry that could reach Russia, but not as sophisticated on the level which would cause any meaningful damage to Russia. Mm, okay, Khair. Uh, Sister Khadij writes, what was Imran Khan doing in Russia? Does anyone know? I think, uh, I think the connection is suffering right now. Can you hear me, brother? Alhamdulillah. So Sister Khadija writes, what was Imran Khan doing in Russia? Does anyone know? It might be, it might be connection my end, Let me just move to another room. Okay, okay. No worries, no worries. So what's the next question? There's one about what, what was Pakistan doing in Russia? Yeah, what was Imran Khan doing in Russia? Trying to make a deal. Pakistan's economy is in tatters. It needs to make deal with everyone it can. Its position is already very close to China as a result of CPEC and so forth. And obviously China's playing a very interesting role in this. Uh, many people are saying that has there been a secret deal struck between Russia and China, which emboldened Russia to do it, and that in light of sanctions, China would support it financially, and not allow its economy to uh, basically uh, break down. And, and Pakistan, you know what? Pakistan is one of those countries, Fayyad, yeah, Allah. Obviously, as Bangladesh is obviously, it's, 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 a, it's a bit of a Marmite, Marmite situation, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. But, I, but, but I'm of the position, first and foremost, we can never hold all Pakistanis for the crimes of a group of people, policymakers, that did what they did. Yeah. Mm. But it is a country that has huge potential. It is the only Muslim country that has nuclear weapons. Till this day, I cannot fathom why Pakistan, with its resources, with I, I, I don't believe Pakistan has truly discovered its aspirations, its <laughs> depth, and its potential. It mm. is like it is like the big muscle. It, it, it's like the thick bully. It's like the thick muscle of the playground that gets used. It gets used. Hmm. Sa Saudi will Saudi will call upon Pakistan when it needs help. Um, America will come and do what it needs to do. But Pakistan itself is a great big country that can do a lot for Islam and Muslims. I believe hmm. this. But it hasn't found its potential and its aspiration. And why? Because the SIS... Um, well, not SIS, what's their ISI and their military establishment they are split between three camps the hmm. nationalists the pro-Americans and the Islamists the Islamists are the weakest so, so the Islamists are kind of like they're popular on a grassroots low-ranking army level hmm. but, but the nationalists they move between 
the Islamists and the pro-Americans. Yeah, the pro-Americans so for, yeah. yeah, but the pro-Americans are the ones that receive the military aid. They're the ones that receive most of the money and backing and power. So really, it is upon the Muslims of Pakistan to rectify their affairs, inshallah ta'ala, to then try lead by example. Yeah, because it has the potential, but it doesn't understand its own potential. That's why Pakistan, mm. that's why Imran Khan is literally going around and has been since his tenure with a begging bowl for handouts and help from other countries. Mm, I agree. Before I go on with the questions, I had one question from uh, to you as a fellow Bengali. Do you oh, notice this a lot, or is it just me, bro, in the Bengali community and the whole Desi community that they have this whole the white man is the savior? You know, like they still have that slave mindset, bro, that if we don't know English well, that if we're not fair and lovely in terms of our skin complexion, if we don't get approval from them, if we don't get validation from them, we're nobody, you know. Yes, that exists. But I think we have to be fair here, Fayyad. Yeah? I'll tell you why, bro. Yeah. When leading nations like superpowers and leading civilizations People mm. always want to imitate the leading nations and civilizations. Mm-hmm. That's that's just the way it is. The very fact that the way you are dressed the way you are and I am dressed the way I am is the fact that whether we like it or not, bro, we've accepted as a particular style of mm. a particular look which is seen as cool and the best. And people look upon Westerners like, yeah, we want to speak like them, talk like them. In the same mm. way that the Crusaders, when they came back, they came back doing Arabic poetry. Mm. And they came back dressing like Arabs. And some of the Christians in Europe, you say, look at these, we sent them to to bring the Holy Land back and they've come back freaking speaking Arabic poetry. Right? Do you understand? Mm -hmm. So people, lesser nations will always try to imitate the more powerful nations. Had there not been the Crusades, there would not have been the Renaissance. The Renaissance happened because those Christians and Europeans that went to the Crusades in the Muslim world bought and learned things from the Muslims which led to the Renaissance, which then led to the Enlightenment, which then led to the Industrial Revolution and the age of European colonialism. I know that's a super mm. simplification. I know that's a super simplification, mm. but that is what happened. So we shouldn't be surprised, my brother. We shouldn't be surprised that we want to imitate the Gora, that we want to mm. imitate the white European, the Westerner. That shouldn't surprise us because there was a time where people wanted to imitate the Muslims. They wanted to imitate the Andalusians. They wanted to imitate the Ottomans. They wanted that's to right. imitate, you understand? So, so that's I'm not surprised by that. And then obviously mm. there was the brutalization of colonialism, mm-hmm. right? Which then gave us the the kind of they basically taught us what is good and bad, what's nice and not nice, what's attractive and not, what's beautiful and not. They imprinted so it, that, bro. They imprinted it generations ago, and it's it's deep. Of course. So mm. the, the answer to your question is yes, it still very much exists. But all I'm saying is. Let's have a bit of Husna done in terms of the context of why it is like that. Our job is to turn that around. Our job is to change that. Our job is to highlight to them that are you trying to please Allah Azza wa Jal or are you trying to please these law? Why are you trying to imitate that? How far are you going to go in imitating them? How far are you going to go in imitating them? So, yes, the answer to your question is yes, it exists. It very much exists. But yeah. I think slowly, inshallah, it's, things are changing b- because because the, the 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 winds of revivals here, bro, man. The winds of revivals here, bro. Mm, subhanallah. But the Abir writes, "Ki khawar bhaijan." Balad bhai, shab balon. You know, I can't I can't speak shuddha basha. Mm. My uh, my older siblings speak shuddha basha. Mm. I just about speak silati properly. Silati. Uh, yeah, silati. So I'm I'm not a blamati. I'm not olamati. 
আমাদের Silet, Sileti is regarded as its own language with its own alphabet. Not that I care or lose sleep over this, but it is a thing. And then it just kind of got harmonized as a dialect as part of Sheikh Mujib's uh, attempt at unifying the Bengali language uh, under the new state. Why did you say last question? I went to Amir Bangladesh last Islam, uh, October 2000, I was born in Bangladesh. ডিস্টেন্স Did you know this by the way when I was in Vancouver I was in Vancouver in 2020 and my daddy passed away may Allah have mercy on her I mean when I was out in Canada Vancouver to Bangladesh or Vancouver to okay Vancouver or Edmonton whichever but West Canada to Bangladesh is the equivalent of Britain to Australia meaning 24 hours yeah it's diametrically opposed Yeah, 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 yeah. So I said, because I realized, and I'm like, wow, I'm speaking to my mom. It's like the same time, but a complete day ahead. And I'm like, whoa. Mm-hmm. And then I realized, so what I will encourage you, my brother, is when you get an opportunity, go, my brother, because it's our roots. It's our roots. And at the end of the mm-hmm. day, if we ever get kicked out of these countries for whatever we do, Shashim is not the only one. It's not the only one. বাংলাদেশি Bangladeshi culture and heritage is mainly predominantly Muslim and Islamic. Mm-hmm. I don't care what anyone says. I don't care what the Awami League says. The mm-hmm. the, 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 the bulk <laughs> of our the bulk of our heritage is Islamic. Yeah. So things like speaking the language, eating the food, these kind of like cultural things is important because at a time we're increasingly losing those kind of identities. It's important because Bangladesh is a Muslim majority country. And so therefore mm-hmm. it's somewhat to some degree to some degree it, our culture is heavily influenced by Islam even though there's a lot of Hindu influences as well yeah but the point is but the point is we do I do encourage brothers to go as much when they can inshallah bro you just motivated me man I'm just going to buy uh, the next flight to Dhaka inshallah and then tell me tell me maybe we can go together bro inshallah let's make it happen bro let's make it happen bro inshallah brother J Prize writes can Dilly mention where and how to contact him and recommend readings or resources. So I believe brother Dilly Hussein mentioned that he's going to send it to me and I'll just put it over here. But is there anywhere that they can, you know, contact you guys or five pillars? Of course, so you can you can catch us on all our socials, but if you want to contact me, uh Instagram dilly.hussein88, Twitter dilly hussein88, 
Um, Facebook, you'll find me. You can you can contact us on info at fivepillarsuk.com. Mm. And yeah, just, sh- just shout us. But in terms of the, because the brother, uh, Perez, who asked earlier, he asked books for so many different subjects. So what I'll do is I'll just send you some books, which you can post on the comments, inshallah, or maybe address him directly uh, and share it then. Because it's quite frankly, there's too many books. So I'll, I'll suggest some. And I'll, I'll, I'll share it with you. All right, Sister Sends. Brother, do you think we can go back to the Islamic Golden Age or do we have to wait for the Mahdi? Um, do you think we can go back to the Islamic Golden Age? So let me address that one first. First and foremost, actually, Fayyad, let me ask you something, my brother. Mm. You know, we commonly hear about the Islamic Golden Age. Yeah. They tend to refer to Andalus, mm. uh, Baghdad under the Abbasids, right? Um, the the period of intellectual, uh, mathematical, uh, ge- uh, you know, geometrical, whatever, they're all, all that kind of advancement, mm. yeah? But the actual golden era, golden period of Islam, were the first three generations. I was going to ask mm. you the question, but I've answered it for you. The, the actual golden era of Islam were the first three generations of Islam. The Prophet ﷺ and his companions, the Tabi'een and the Taba Tabi'een. The Prophet ﷺ said that they were the best of generations. So therefore, we measure our golden age based on that. Because they mm-hmm. ruled, according to Islam, the most closest and, and the most perfect in those generations. That is our golden era, golden age. That's the golden age that we want to, you know, uh, repeat mm-hmm. and bring back and inshallah improve. As for this golden age of science and geometry and maths mm-hmm. and technological advancement, look, who even... Who even created this term golden age and associated it to those things Europeans did mm. we didn't it's look a popular at, term that they gave and we're just going with it go, mm. look into our books look into our books of history and find me where a reputable Sunni scholar says that this is the golden era of Islam because we did X, Y and Z no the golden era of Islam is the first three generations right so we, so now we're being told what our golden generation is do you understand how our golden era is how dare you shut up what are you talking about? Mm. You don't tell us what I was... Say it then. Say that say the, the era of advancement was this period. But do not say that Islam's golden era were those periods. Because mm. in those same periods, we had princes and sultans that weren't so Islamic. And they were getting up to all kinds of shenanigans, right? During this kind of enlightenment period. The reason why Islam, alhamdulillah, for over a millennia, uh, allow such advancements, right? In 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 um, you know maths and science and technology and stuff like this, mm. is because there was never a conflict between this. Because Allah Subhanahu wa Taala tells us that you know look at the alteration of night and day. Surely these are signs of men of understanding. Allah tells us continuously, fikr, fikr, think, question. That's fine. We we never had a problem with science and the human intellect because we were that confident. That's Europe's problem. That's Europe's problem. Don't impose your issues with. The, uh, with the Pope and the Vatican to us. You lot had the problem where your Bible wasn't even translated into your respective languages until bloody King James came and did it in the 1600s. Mm. Yeah? Don't come to us and tell us about <laughs> our golden age when you wouldn't even allow women to basically read the Bible. In fact, the normal, the lay Christian in Europe for a thousand years could not access the Bible. Mm. Do you understand? So what are you on? Yeah, don't come and superimpose 
those problems that you lot had in Europe to us, Islam never had that problem. Islam's decline happened when we moved away from Islam. That's when our decline happened. Yeah, your loss re- revival mm. happened when you moved away from the oppressive nature of Christianity, mm. and that's and, and that's that's good on you, man. But don't don't apply that to us. <laughs> we never had a co- we we never had a conflict between science and and the intellect of man and questioning and reason and these kind of things. Don't try it. Most of the Jean-Jacques Rousseau and all these Enlightenment fingers, who do they praise? They, they praise Ghazali, they praise Avicenna, they praise mm-hmm. our people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we never had these problems. You lot had these problems. You lot had to have bloody wars to overthrow kings and kingdoms to then somehow access the Bible and then like create a different variations of your religion, which is more liberal and, and more open to free thought. We never had those problems. We never had that dogma between science and our religious tradition. We never did. Brothers and sisters, when someone says to you the golden era of Islam, respectfully correct those non-Muslims say, it is the golden era from the perspective of these specific advancements. But our mm. actual golden era were the first three generations. Why? Because they were, most, they were the most closest to Islam. They were the most closest to the Prophet. They were the most closest to the revelation. Mm. Alhamdulillah, man. That was spot on. Okay. Made of Earth writes, fired, comment, first you may not like it aesthetically. Bro, see, I was born in Bangladesh, right? And I lived there for the first four or five years of my life. So I'm very familiar. And I've been there many times after that, you know. It just, bro, studying medicine in Canada is such a long process. You got to go with the undergrad. Then you got to go to med, right? So total, it's like eight, nine years for me, bro. I'm like seven years deep. And this is after high school, you know. So I got two two more years left, inshallah. Make door for me. And when it's done, inshallah. But it's, it's not that I don't want to go. It's just, I know this sounds crazy, but I just haven't gotten around to it. And it just happened to have been 12 years, bro. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make you successful in your in your studies, my brother. And in your worldly affairs to give you the best outcome of Jannah and the hereafter. I mean, um, look, bro, we all have priorities, innit? We have priorities. And sometimes if you're studying to that level and to that depth, sometimes a visit to Bangladesh isn't a priority. But I tell mm. you something, though, yeah? Every time I go to Bangladesh, and I've been in 99... I've been in 2012. No, no, 99, I went. 2005, I went. Mm. Uh, 2012, I went. And then obviously 2020, I went, yeah? Mm. Every time I've been, it all is like, I don't know where you're from in Bang- uh, Like, are you, I'm from are you Dhaka, from- bro. I'm from Dhaka. My, my dad's I, from Kushtia, but I'm from Dhaka. Are you from urban Dhaka or village? That's because village of Dhaka, the, the rural Dhaka. New, new DHS. Okay. So, facilities are mainly, if not, entirely from like we're from we're from the kind of rural areas right mm-hmm. yeah and every, every time i go bangladesh bro yeah my what my my western privilege uh, uh comes out and i start kicking out it always takes me two three days to adjust it always takes me two three days to adjust i'm kicking off no microwave not running hot, hot water bloody mosquitoes you know what i mean yeah you know what I, mean? I always get and then after two three days alhamdulillah i'm like okay cool I've become accustomed to it. It's just mm-hmm. blessed. But but those two first two three days, no matter how many times I've visited, I always need to adjust because I'm not used to it. It takes you outside of your comfort zone. Do you understand? Mm-hmm. But I love it. I love it because it tests me. It reminds me how privileged we actually are in the sense that we're quite brattish and devious. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? We take things for granted. As soon as we go to the kind of the rural areas and, and very developing world, we start understanding. Oh, okay, this is how people live, and it, it always shocks me. I know what I'm expecting. But it always shocks me. Um, so I encourage you, my bro, when the time is right, go. If you want to go together, let's do it. 
Let's make it happen, bro. Inshallah. Um, one thing is like you notice these things too. Like you saying these things, they're bringing back memories. You know, you go. There's no more. You know, I want to wear this fit tomorrow and it's dirty. So let me just you know put it in the washer and put it in the dryer. It's gonna take like 24 minimum hours for it to hang dry outside. You know, it really humbles me, man. Hundred percent, bro. So so these are, so it's like little little things like no running hot water. Right, mm. so we have to boil water or hope that the sun heats the tanky, which will give us hot water. Yeah, mm. yeah. Then obviously my people there, as in my relatives there, then they ain't gonna wash the machine. They'll go wash it in the fukri. They'll go wash it in the uh, with some with some uh, soap and stuff, and they'll, and they'll dry it out. And the, and the and the clothes are fine, bro. Um, mm. you know, if 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 my people say to me, if my family say to me, food's ready, I need to go and eat because there's no microwave. I, I need to go mm. wash the food as well. Do you understand? Now, obviously, there are mo- there has been immense modernization in Bangladesh. Bangladesh mm. has one of the fastest growing economies in Asia with one of the highest GDPs comparatively to many uh, Asian countries. But I will still say that that benefits only a group of people. You know, those those things those things really benefit a group of people. The average Bangladeshi, sadly, like in Pakistan and in India and in Indonesia, sadly are living below poverty beyond comprehension in the west mm. beyond comprehension in the west so whilst yes bangladesh is one of the fastest growing economies things are happening it will always benefit the middle class the upper middle class and the elite not the average bangladeshi whether they're in chittagong or rajshahi or kumilla or dhaka or Word. no Facilities mm-hmm, mm-hmm. are a bit yeah. are a bit different though you have to understand because facilities have the largest diaspora community outside of Bangladesh in the West, namely in the UK. So a lot mm. of British money has been pumped into Sillet. I know. So, yeah, so the living standards of Sillities, and there's always a saying, I know it's not a nice saying, but they say even the beggars in Sillet want, want pounds. Yeah, They say mm-hmm. that even, even the beggars in Sillet want pounds because they're used to big bucks and big money. Yeah, because, because they're used to Brits coming and spending and investing in Sillet. How, how big is the Muslim population there, bro? Just as the brothers are asking. I, I was waiting for this to come. So you may be surprised, brothers and sisters, <laughs> right? You may be surprised. When we talk about the Ummah, the Ummah, the Ummah, 40% of the Ummah is in Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, and Indonesia. How about that? How about that? That one in five Muslims, if not two in five, will be from those four countries. If we remove the colonial borders of Pakistan and Bangladesh and just see it as Hind, yeah, mm. bro, the vast majority of the Ummah are from Hind, yeah, and from and if you put Indonesia into that, then you're you're looking at basically forty percent of the global Ummah are from those four countries. So Bangladesh's Bangladesh's Muslim population, as it stands, and obviously we don't have kind of thorough, you know, comprehensive research, but the kind of rough number is hundred and sixty million Muslims. But I want to say something about this. That's 160 million Muslims in a country that fits five and a half times in Pakistan and over 12 times in Bang- in India. Hmm. Put, that, put that into perspective now. Pakistan has 210 million. Bangladesh has 160. But it is four and a half times or five and a half times smaller than smaller. Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Yeah? So... Yeah, we love having babies, man. May Allah multiply Amen. our numbers. And may Rasulullah be proud of the Bangladeshi Muslims on Yom Al-Qiyamah. Ameen. Allahumma Ameen. Brother Abdul writes, gentle reminder, is it Maghrib yet for Brother Dili? It is, what, what's the time now? It's 5.47 is Maghrib. 5.48, yeah. 
Okay, yeah. So yeah, I'll take one more question if you want, Habib. Now, inshallah, there's no question. We'll we'll write a we'll just put one of these comments. This is from Sister Wad. Um, she's the one that handles our TikTok, mashallah. Wicked. So she writes, the regression of the Islamic world back to Jahiliya happened as a result of the Muslim world abandoning real Islamic principles and adopting culture over the... There is truth to this. There is truth to this because, look, the decline of the Islamic civilization, which was prophesied in the very uh, well-known hadith of Musnad Ahmed, yeah, to shorten it, the Prophet mm. already told us that after prophethood, there will be Khilafah al-Rashidah. Then there will be kings. Then there will be a biting tyranny. Then there will be Khilafah no more. And then it will return upon the methodology of prophethood. And the Rasulullah stayed quiet. Many of the scholars took from this Sahih Hadith that him staying quiet means that when it comes, it is it will stay until the day of judgment some scholars have taken it from that mm. and this is linked to a question that someone else asked about do we wait for imam mahdi it is not the position of ahl sunnah to say that khilafah will be established when imam mahdi comes alayhi salam we say that because the the few narrations that we do have about imam mahdi is that he will come at a time where there will be wars between or a a dispute between the three sons of the khulafa so there will already be a khilafah established, whether it's weak or corrupt or big or small, it doesn't matter. That that uh, authentic narration says that when Imam Mahdi arrives, there will be a feud, a dispute between the sons of the Khalifa who's mm -hmm. died, and then they will the people will choose him. Yeah. So it is not from you know this nihilistic, lazy understanding that we're gonna wait for Imam Mahdi. Do you mean you're gonna wait for Imam Mahdi? Mm. Are you okay? We'll see how, how, how much you're willing to wait for Imam Mahdi when, when, when something comes to your doorstep. No. Mm. Ahl sunnah we are not a people who say we wait for Imam Mahdi. Mm -hmm. We say that Imam Mahdi will come and he will rule mm. by justice, just as we were told. And he's from the noble lineage of Rasulullah That's what we say about Imam Mahdi. Mm. We do not say that he will come and establish Khilafah. It's not, it's not a victim that, mindset. Yeah. We say mm. that he will come and he will probably find a Khilafah established and he will, inshallah, take it to levels inshallah. that it needs to be taken. That's what needs mm. to be said. Uh, and just on that sister's point before I, before I part, is that what happens is that when we've had rulers and states and polities and sultanates and caliphates for 1400 years, you know, there's been many instances where the raw desire and passion and zeal and understanding the obligation of spreading the word of Allah to the four corners of the earth, that when men started becoming attached to dunyai things and they started fighting each other, that Allah prepared us for defeat and decline. Do you understand? He, did, mm. he, he got us ready for defeat and decline. And that's what happens. When we become a generation that is not worthy of Allah's victory and establishment on earth, Allah will remove us and replace us with another people. So if you want to be of that camp, which is I'm going to wait for Imam Mahdi, you're going to get replaced swiftly and you won't even be a footnote in history. So you brothers and sisters who believe in this, please change this mindset. Change this mindset. Yeah, because we are a people who believe in the, of course, we believe in the entirety of the Quran, but we mm. commonly say that Allah tells us in Surah Al-Imran, we have raised you. From amongst the, for, we have raised you as the best nation from amongst mankind. Hmm. Allah did not stop there. He caveated that by saying, Why? Because we're enjoining good and forbid evil yeah. and believe in Allah. 
Yeah, we know of the hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu who said that when you see when a believer sees a munkar, an evil, he try he should change it with his hands, and if he can't, he should speak out against it. If then mm. the lowest of iman is to hate it from within. That's what a Muslim is. A Muslim is someone who invites to Allah, does good, and says, "I am one of the Muslims." Again, a verse from the Quran. Yeah. Mm. So this is the mindset of a Muslim. The mindset of a Muslim is that I'm going to wait for Imam Mahdi, and that's when things will be sorted. No, 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 no. That is unprophetic, and I would even go as far as saying un-Islamic. I feel like people don't know that they 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 lack that understanding of that that perspective that you just shared with us, bro. Because it's, it's the I don't want to say this in in equal and measure, but figuratively, right? It's the equivalent of people saying, "Oh, if my cover's already written, why do anything?" It's like, no, bro. Allah knows what you're gonna do, but you still gotta do it. You know, hundred percent. There's a sphere that we control, and there's a sphere that we don't control. The sphere mm -hmm. that we control is what we're gonna be accounted for. Do you understand? Mm -hmm. So, so we can't have that. And you know, we have lots of Muslims sadly and worryingly adopting kind of like uh, liberal left kind of like liberal left kind of social justice kind of like mindsets. Right? The entire concept of social justice all came from Islam. Islam has, has an in, entire corpus of of how to tackle injustice and oppression. That's why Allah mm -hmm. He puts the Dali Moon upon the highest ranking of evildoers on earth. We have a blueprint to address oppression and injustice. Do not fall into this mindset of oh Imam Mahdi is going to come fix all our problems. That is like the one who said that my fathers caused the problems and my sons will will fix the problem. Where do you fit into this? Where do you fit into that then? <laughs> if the problems were caused by your forefathers and you're hoping your children are going to sort it. You're just a waste man and you're not looking to do anything. So brothers and sisters, fix up that mindset, move away from it. We are a people of taqwa and iman and action. Yeah, hmm. that's what we are. We are not a people who sit back and relax and think, yeah, you know what? Imam Mahdi will come sort it out. We're not about that life. Hmm. Subhanallah, bro. What a wonderful point to end it on, bro. It really puts into perspective that a lot of us are in that middle bridge. You know, we are that middle generation where we are trying to advance and, and try to even almost advise and guide our forefathers in the right path. But we also have this immense responsibility that we have to be responsible for the next generation, inshallah. And may Allah equip us and our family and our loved ones and all of us to fight the right battles, withhold things that are not necessary and have the discernment to know what is what, inshallah. I mean, I want to say one quick thing before I go here. Yeah? Go for it. Brothers and sisters, the Muslims of this generation, i.e. the last 80 years, but specifically our generation. We are a generation that I believe Muslims in the future, in years to come, will study intricately. And they will see how we dealt with the struggles that we've had. Because never in Islamic history, never since the message of Islam came to the people of Arabia under, under the Prophet ﷺ, from when the Khilafah was abolished in 1924, even though it was weakened and somewhat... Uh, you know, it wasn't doing much for, for, for many years. But the point is, when that got taken away, and what we have faced and experienced, whether it's the centuries of brutal colonialism, the ideological warfare between normative Islam to change what we believe, to water it down, to secularize us, all of this stuff we're experiencing, others have not experienced it like that in the past. Yes, they had the Mongol invasion. Yes, they had other things. But I truly believe that the generation of Muslims in the last 80 years and for coming decades is going to be a special golden generation. Because inshallah, we will be that generation that brings victory to Islam. Why? Why? Because we 
have been in a situa- situation where our forefathers and our predecessors never had a situation like this. Mm. Yes, the Mongols came. Yes, the Mongols came. They ravaged our lands. But after 100 years, they became Muslim. The Mongols became Muslim. And we regained those lands. But the point is the situation now is like none other in our history. And you know what that means? That means it's time for Ajar. It's time to be history makers. Don't be a bystander, brothers and sisters. Don't be, don't be bystanders. We're living in a special generation, man. I truly believe that those who are active for the deen of Islam now, yeah, that we're going to have a special status, inshallah. If our deeds and our efforts are accepted, I genuinely believe that we'll have, we will have a special status in the history of Islam. As that generation that had to deal with external threats, internal threats, and everything else. In the absence mm. of a central authority, in the absence of any meaningful governance or rulership that will protect the Izza and the life and the blood of the Muslims, never have we been in such a state where we have been oppressed and colonized and brutalized. And I believe it's only going to get worse before Allah's victory comes. And I believe it's going to be this generation because the generations before did not experience this. And we pray to Allah, we rectify it before our future generations. We have a special status. It is now your choice whether you want to be a contributor or a bystander on the Day of Judgment. Allahumma ameen. With that being said, man, <clears throat> I really regret that um, Brother Anhel and Rami weren't here because this was such a you know real live vibe. But inshallah, this is not the first. This is the first of many, inshallah. And man, stay tuned for anyone watching. Um, I have a channel too where I vlog. So inshallah, Bangladesh vlog featuring Brother Dili Hussein. Inshallah. 100. And I'm serious about the fire. Once you're ready, my bro, once we're ready, let's just liaise with each other and we go dash together, inshallah. You show me Dakar and I'll show you Silet, my bro. Inshallah, I'm done. I've never been a Silet, bro. Let's make it happen. Yeah. Cool, All right, Barakallah With that being said, if you guys made it this far, smash the like button. Brother Dili Hussein, if people want to connect with you or follow your socials, where should they find you at? So literally, Instagram, Dili.Hussein88. You'll find me that. Uh, Twitter, Dili Hussein 88 And just Dili Hussein, and you'll find us, everyone. Five Pillars News, you just have to Google it. So nothing complex, nothing tricky. Just need to Google or find me on Dili Hussein 88 or Five Pillars and all our platforms and our, and our socials will come up, inshallah. Inshallah. All right, bro. With that being said, Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh, bro. Thank you for coming. Wa alaikum assalam warahmatullahi It was an honor to be on, my bro. May Allah accept it from you guys. I mean, I mean, you're